0: Reflections on Dante's Purgatorio by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 4. Well, prior to Canto 18, Dante has been priming us. But in Canto 18, he really sets us up for it. And uh, we have to realize how we're being set up. In the earlier cantos, Canto 16, Marco talked about the soul... Uh, turning to what delights it, and so on. In Canto 17, Dante said, "Excuse me." Virgil said, "Love is the seed in you of every virtue and of all acts deserving punishment." In other words, it's the it's what gives gives rise to virtue and vice. In Canto 18, Dante line 14 says to Virgil, "Teach me what love is." You have reduced to love both each good and its opposite teach me what love is. Well, that's a little bit like Beethoven saying, teach me what music is, or whatever. Dante is, is, the, is the great towering genius in the Western tradition on that subject. And so when he asked, innocently asked the question of Virgil, you know that he is setting us up for something. Now, the whole Divine Comedy is a response to that question. The whole Divine Comedy is a response to that question, but he's asking it in a specific way, and Virgil's going to answer him, and some things are going to happen, and so on and so forth. So what I want to do is just realize that this is a big one for Dante. Well, in learning what love is, some distinctions have to be made, and Virgil begins to make them, but I would like to suggest at the outset the following distinction, which I think goes as close as I can come to the heart of the issue dealt with in Canto eighteen nineteen, there is something called unearned love, and I would regard unearned love as the motive mystery of the universe. And then there is something called effortless love, and I would regard effortless love as as the merest f- fantasy of every adolescent. But it's pretty easy to confuse these two unearned love and effortless love. And it seems to me that one of the things Dante is exploring in this canto and a half is the distinction between those two. And the distinction has to do with will and with the role of will in the life of love. So Virgil begins to explain things, and he says, beginning line 19, the soul which is created quick to love, that's what the soul is created to do, Responds to everything that pleases, just as soon as beauty wakens it to act. It is stirred into its task, the, it stirred into action, into its task, its life task, by beauty or by that which is attractive to it, or to which it is attracted. Your apprehension draws an image from a real object and expands upon that object until soul has turned toward it. Now that is many hundreds of years before Freud and Jung and all of the understanding about projection and uh, participation and so on and so forth. Your apprehension draws an image from a real object and expands upon that object till the soul has turned toward it And if so, turn, the soul tends steadfastly, then that propensity is love. Steadfastness, love is the propensity, but steadfastness is a key ingredient. It's nature that joins the soul to you anew through beauty. Then, just as flames of sin, because the form of fire was fashioned to fly upward, Toward the stuff of its own sphere, where it lasts longest, so does the soul, when seized, move into longing. The captivated soul yields to its desire. So that's the way things are. But the rub comes in, line 38. It may seem always good, but not each seal is fine, although the wax is. Now this is the supreme thing. That is to say that the world is a great array of people and things that have the capacity to impress me, to make an impression on me. And some of them are worthy and some are not. I may be impressed by a speech of Hitler's. See? I may be seduced in the wrong direction. I may be captivated by something tremendously important and elevating in my life. So that they are... Those are not all good, but the wax is precious. He's making that crucial distinction. The wax, the libido, let's call it, is precious. Don't confuse matters. Dante is making one of those... Great Dantean clarification. Some of that, see, does it not happen in life that because an impression, because I have been impressed by something that's unworthy, when I finally come to realize that that has happened, I come to, sus- I come to suspect not just that which gave the impression, but the wax? And I become uh, unimpressionable. And Dante is making this beautiful distinction. That wax, and keep it soft, friends. He's <laughs> saying, make it available, even though you run the risk. And then it, there's an allusion to the limits of, of reason. Virgil is the personification of reason. He says, What reason can see here, I can impart. Past that, for truth of faith, its beatrice alone you must await and then he goes on line 55 to explain man does not know the source of his intelligence of primal notions and his tending toward desires primal objects both are in you just as bees just as in bees there is the honey-making urge such primal will deserves no praise and it deserves no blame so there is the primal object of my desire and I may, be, I may be unaware of it tending towards the less primal objects of my desire. But the primal object is always there and, it is, and the motive force is always related somehow to that primal object. And just as there is in bees the honey-making urge, I have both the desire and the impulse to shape that desire. He goes on to say, Now that all other longings may conform to this first will, there is in you inborn the power that counsels, keeper of the threshold of your ascent. This is the principle on which your merit may be judged. The purpose is not to crush all desires that are not the primal desire but that all longings may conform to that primal desire, that all desires, and, and Dante is too much of a small C Catholic to try to squelch other desires. His is the via positiva, not the via negativa. His is, let's have them. Oh, the whole orchestral arrangement is fine, as long as it's orchestral, as long as, it, as, long as they all come into and celebrate the primal desire which is to know God. Okay. And for Dante, they all reach their ultimate expression when they are so orchestrated. That if they get out of that orchestration, they become not only cacophonous, but they lose their power. All of these longings and desires Become more potent and more fully expressed if they receive their orchestration, and it is this quality in us, inborn quality in us, that is a a, a choice making faculty in us that must be brought to bear on these things. A kind of a conductor, if you will. I, I didn't mean to get into. I kind of backed into that metaphor. I don't want. I don't want to pursue it too far. But anyway, um, and that's what he's talking about, this choice-making or this will. He goes on to say, Even if we allow necessity a source of every good that flames in you, the power to curb that love is still your own. Uh, By curb, he does not mean suppress or repress. He means to channel. This noble power is what Beatrice means by free will. Therefore, remember it if she should ever speak to you of it. So he began speaking of love, and now he's talking about will. What is the role of will in the lo- in, in a life of love? And we're on the ledge where sloth is being purged. The classical name is Asidia, and it refers to spiritual lethargy. It is the, the collapse of ardor and passion in the spiritual life. So Dante's mind begins to wander. He's just received the lapidary truth right from the mouth of the source of all uh, rational wisdom, and he gets a little sleepy. He starts to nod off a little bit. He starts to daydream. He's just had it in its verbal form, perfectly explained. But something else is going to have to come in on him. He's going to have to get the other version of it. But in any case, he starts to nod off a little bit, nearing sleep, random visions. And suddenly, he's awakened out of that semi-slumber by this this uh, madly dashing group of penitents that round the corner, running wildly past. And it must be noted that the simile that he uses to describe their their... F- frenetic pace, is that he says it's like the Thebans in a Bacchanalian frenzy. Now that is a very interesting, let's remember, we're in the realm of sloth, and what we're talking about in sloth is not laziness. Sloth is the lack of ardor and passion. And these souls who have been guilty of that sin are now behaving as though they're in the Bacchanalian orgiastic rituals. You see, that is what they missed. What their sloth consisted of in life was the lack of passion and ardor. Now, Dante is not recommending Bacchanalian orgies. As an alternative, he see, he's simply saying that's the corrective. That's what they didn't have, is passion. They didn't have that entheos, from which we get the word enthusiasm. That ravenous indwelling of the God, which, which makes you, brings you alive in that kind of almost insane way. That's what they didn't have. And so now they're having. Libido. Libido energy, psychic energy, passion. The, the slothful are guilty of passionlessness, of desirelessness. That's their problem. Dante has, Virgil has just been talking about desire. And the slothful are guilty of desirelessness. They have tried to solve this problem of the multitudinous desires versus the primal desire by not having any perhaps suspecting all of them of of being able to lead them astray. And, of course, all of them can lead astray, so they just don't have any. And, of course, their desirelessness or their passionlessness can, when for lack of anything else to do, be turned momentarily, the sort of autoeroticism of it can be turned momentarily outward and look like passion, but it isn't. I'm thinking of. Uh, I'm think. I've been calling them the fern bars. I realize they're no longer called fern bars. Somebody told me in one of the other classes they're not called fern bars, where people go to meet each other, you know, and uh, pick each other up and all that. Uh, if one goes into one of those places, and they they may have some social redeeming social value in our culture, I don't know. But if one goes in those places, what the first thing that strikes you if you really open your eye is the passionlessness. There's desirelessness there. It's not happening. Uh, And the hope is somehow if you come together under the right circumstances, it might. So Virgil says, he speaks to these people that are running around and he says, because he needs to get directions, O people in whom eager fervor now may compensate for sloth and negligence, you showed in doing good half-heartedly. Tell us how to get out of here," he says. "Half-heartedness is the problem, or lukewarmness is the problem." One of these San Francisco uh, theater groups—I uh, don't—Duck's Breast Mystery Theater or somebody years ago came up with uh, these two characters: uh, Guru Lethargy and Swami Prokrastananda. <laughs> so half-heartedness is the problem. Dorothy Sayers uh, speaks of sloth and her note on it in her translation of Divine Comedy, and she says, In the world it is called tolerance, but in hell it is called despair. Sloth. And, of course, sloth can be activity. Frenzied activity can be sloth, because we're talking about spiritual sloth. It's the lack of spiritual passion or spiritual ardor. So that can certainly coexist with a life of of external material activity. Well, then we go on down and we find out, we get the words that mock sloth, And uh, they are these. I'll read them to you, line 133 and following. Uh, The ones for whom the sea parted were dead before the Jordan saw those who had inherited its lands. That's a reference to the Israelites mid-journey started thinking, well, Egypt wasn't so bad, was it? Given the nature of this desert we're in right now, Egypt wasn't so bad. The next one is, and those who did not suffer trials until the end, together with Anchises' son, gave themselves up to life without renown." Anchises' son is Aeneas. There are two, two stories here that are being referred to, and I think it's important to dwell on them for a moment. The story of the um, Israelites is that mid-journey out of Egypt, they started murmuring. And what they murmured was, Egypt wasn't so bad. Uh, in hindsight, uh, you know, we got by okay, we had food, um, maybe we should go back. And in the Aeneas story, they journey, Troy's been destroyed, and they sail the seas for this long time. They land in Sicily, people are tired of sailing the seas on this great uh, historic journey of theirs, and so it's a complicated little story. Uh, with the gods intervening and the women burning the ships and so on. But there comes a point where Aeneas says, okay, if you want to stay here in Sicily, you can. But just want to make a point. Here's from book five of the Aeneid. And meanwhile, with a plow, Aeneas marks the city's limits and allots the houses. In other words, they're going to build a new city right there in Sicily. They're abandoning the quest for Rome. And, and Troy has already been destroyed. The other name for Troy is Ilium by the way, so he he takes a plow and marks out the city for them and he calls one district Troy and another Ilium let 's just stop the journey here and name it after all of after the place. let 's just call it, pave it and paint it green let 's just call it by that name, and let's live in nostalgia and the israelites the israelites so funny they began to be nostalgic for the flesh pots of egypt A flesh pot is a bowl of stew and they said it wasn't so bad sitting by the flesh pots in egypt it's interesting because the egyptians ate the stew and the israelites ate the hard bread they did they were nostalgic for watching the Egyptians eat. See? They weren't nostalgic for eating the stew. They didn't get any. (laughs) They were nostalgic for the kind of longings they had back then. I mean, it was... So the point of these stories is two, I think. Number one is that sloth is a mid-journey problem. It's the collapse of ardor and passion in mid-journey. And that one of its important elements is a nostalgia for bygone time. And that, is, that I think, is key to, the, to understanding it. Lewis Simpson has a line in uh, one of his poems, which I like dearly. He, he, he talks about coming out of Egypt land of eat your spinach. The Egypt land of eat your spinach. You see, that's the Egypt that we've all been in. Is it not? The Egypt twin, where I am, in some sense, a slave. That is to say, I, my life is not in my hand; It is controlled by others who say, eat your spinach. It's not exactly a flesh pot, it's just spinach. Eat your spinach. But then there comes a hankering for that. In, if there is the mid-course collapse of ardor and passion and will... Then one thinks, oh, to go back and have somebody tell me what to do. That'd be nice. So, um, a midpoint collapse of will in the journey of love. A salient feature of which is nostalgia. And it's nostalgia for, I think, effortless love at least the nostalgia Dante's talking about, is for effortless love. All of us who have had, and all of us have had, at least some fleeting experience of unearned love. And when we unconsciously hearken back to it nostalgically, what we're hearkening back for, what we're longing for is effortless love, and they're not the same thing. If we've ever had the experience of unearned love, then in a life of, in a love life that requires effort and passion and energy and ardor, sometimes we lose all that and long for effortless love. Wow. Here's a Leonard Cohen poem. Leonard Cohen explored this, at least this aspect of Dante's work pretty well, I think. I left a woman waiting. I met her sometime later. She said, your eyes are dead. What happened to you, lover? And since she spoke the truth to me, I tried to answer truly. Whatever happened to my eyes happened to your beauty. Mid-course, collapse of the ardor. Oh, go to sleep, my faithful wife. I told her rather cruelly, whatever happened to my eyes happened to your beauty. Mid-course, collapse of ardor. And the temptation, as we're about to find out in Dante's work, is to regress, is to go try to go back to that moment when Love was effortless. That is to say, when love was something that happened to you instead of something you did. Right? Richard Wilbur, in a poem called Lying, has these two lines. He speaks of the great lies told with the eyes half shut that have the truth in view. And so there is attempt to shut the eyes again, sort of half shut the eyes and go back out into the world and try to recapture that effortless love, the kind that just happens to you, not the kind that you have to do. So Dante says, now he begins to go back to this little uh, uh, sleepiness of his. He says, a new thought rose inside of me, and from that thought still others, many and diverse, were born. I was so drawn from random thought to thought that wandering in mind, I shut my eyes, transforming thought on thought to dream. And because we know what he dreamed, he dreamed of the siren, the siren, one of the great images of the seductress in classical literature. Because we know what he dreamed and we know the context in which it's taking place. It's out of this uh, phrase in uh, one of Mitchell's translations of Rilke's pieces. It's a piece entitled, The Temptation of the Saint. And the phrase is, The Random Lechery of Distraction. And there we get into sloth and, uh, well, we'll get there when we get there. The Random Lechery of Distraction. Now, Dante has fallen asleep, has drifted into unconsciousness, into the random lechery of distraction, and we want, and, and those of us who've seen some of the results of that, anneal ourselves to it, and we say, no, we must not let that happen. Jung understood that that was the wrong approach, that there are occasions when one must run the risk of having the psychic energy fall into the unconscious, of having, of experiencing what the French anthropologists called a basement du niveau mental, the lowering of the mental level. So that however, however much of, of an error it is, this random lechery of distraction—it's the kind of error I talked about when I, I quoted that. Uh, that Boltzmann thing. Talked about Boltzmann's idea of demythologizing, and, and Sebastian Moore said that's one of those errors that goes so deep that to that to negate it would be another error. Well, this the random lechery of distraction is one of those errors that goes so deep that it would be another error to negate it. One must be willing in that at that moment when one is cut off from the sources of ardor and passion to let the psyche to let the psyche close down a while and let it... And it's a risky operation, you see, because nobody's, nobody's uh, watching the store. But to resist it, to, to use moral muscle to resist this experience is not the same thing as avoiding spiritual sloth. The moral muscle may just camouflage spiritual sloth. Lewis Simpson has a poem... Because you see, because what Dante's going to do is have a dream, a mere dream, you see. And we say, hey, don't get caught up in dreams, please. So uh, Lewis Simpson has a poem that goes like this, or at least a few lines of it go like this. This too is like a dream, the way we live with our cars and power mowers. A life that shuns emotion and the violence that goes with it, the object being to live quietly and bring up children to be happy? say he, he just hit me right where I live. Huh? To live quietly and bring up children to be happy? Hey, that too is a dream. Get off of it. Huh? Kierkegaard said a man who cannot seduce others cannot save them. I think the interesting corollary to that is that if I cannot be seduced, I cannot be saved. Dante says, keep the wax warm and impressionable. At least I think that's what he said. Now, I'm not saying let's all go be seduced. Each to his own on that. What I'm saying is it seems to me what this material is pointing at, and I think the mystery of it, is that if we anneal ourselves to these, this situation because of the obvious dangers of it, something goes out of our life. Well, okay, so Canto 19, the follow-on, the perfect follow-on. Guess where, here's Dante at his best. Where does Dante put the siren, the great classical image of the temptress, where does Dante put her? In the region of sloth. None of us would have thought of it. Where would we have put her? Now, there are all kinds of reasons why he did that. Structural reasons, but the genius of it is that he did it. It is in sloth that the siren appears. And we have to wake up to that. We have to realize that. The country music song entitled The Girls Get Prettier at Closing Time. The siren haunts the regions of sloth. Leonard Cohen said, What character could possibly engage my boredom, that exquisite, spoiled princess in the palace of my failure? His boredom is the exquisite, spoiled princess in the palace of his failure. She refuses even to imagine him with whom I must inspire her hopelessness, and she barely speaks to me. Sloth and the siren, hand in hand. This is, for Dante, a poetic crisis. This this is the anti-muse the siren is the anti-muse, and what he says of the siren, Dan, uh, Mandelbaum has translated it in line nineteen. Pleasing. The Italian is dolce, which means most usually is translated sweet, and it was the key word for Dante to describe romantic poetry. Romantic poetry, when he which he and his friends were inventing or at least refining, was poetry that was dolce. Or dolce. Cesà, it was sweet poetry. It had a special power and appeal to the heart. And Dante knew that he could write that poetry. He knew he was capable of that, technically capable of that. And I think, I don't want us to investigate it at this level, but it should be said that this is a poetic temptation for him. He could write the rest of the Divine Comedy in the same, in that same powerful verse that he has been using, and nobody would notice that it was the Siren and not Beatrice motivating it for maybe a couple of hundred years, and he chose not to do it. So I, I point that out. Uh, again, Leonard Cohen went through the same kind of, uh, and involved himself in the same kind of uh, conundrum, if you will. Leonard Cohen says, I am no longer at my best practicing the craft of verse. I do better in the cloakroom with Sarah. But even in this alternate realm, I am no longer at my best. You see? The siren comes out." Oh, here she is. A stammering woman came to me in in a dream, her eyes askew and crooked on her feet, her hands were crippled, her complexion sallow. I looked at her, and just as sun revives cold limbs that that night made numb, so did my gaze loosen her tongue, and then in a little time set her contorted limbs in perfect order, and with the coloring that love prefers, my eyes transformed the oneness of her features. His eyes caused the transformation to take place. You ever been there? Huh? The girls get prettier at closing time? I'm. Pardon the sexism of that. I'm, I'm just reporting to you. I'm not... Huh? One's eyes... He becomes a co-conspirator in his own delusion. do we not? It's his, what is the price one pays for having this beauty appear? Consciousness. Consciousness. It is Dante and what he does with his eyes that's so important here. Leonard Cohen said, I was thinking about you and I made a pass at myself. Dorothy Sayers says the siren is the romantic image in the pseudo-romantic mirage. And what does she do? Well, when her speech had been set free, then she began to sing. In Italian, singing and po- the words singing and poetry are implicit in one another. So we're talking here about that. She began to sing so that it would have been most difficult for me to turn aside. If you will remember, back over here, Virgil had said to him, um, your apprehension draws an image from a real object and expands upon that object till the soul has turned toward it, and if so turned the soul tends steadfastly, then that propensity is love. Turning is a very important verb here. And he says, she began to sing so that I could not turn aside. The other uh, verb is vulgare, and this one is revolto. It was hard for me to return, to return See, from that. I am, she sang, I am the pleasing siren. That line, I want us to remember when we get to, ver- to get to Beatrice, we want to compare this line to Beatrice's first line. It's a very interesting comparison. I am, she sang, I am the pleasing siren, who in mid-sea, remember mid-course, who in mid-sea leads mariners astray there is so much delight in hearing me i turned aside there's that turning aside again ulysses although he had longed to journey he had been trying to get home to his wife i had turned aside ulysses though he longed to uh, he, though he had longed to journey by the way dante doesn't know uh, homer's odyssey directly and he conflates here ulysses Uh, excuse me, uh, the siren and uh, Circe. Circe did lure Ulysses. The sirens did not. Ulysses had his men stuff their ears with wax and he had himself tied to the mainmast, and he got to hear it, but he didn't get caught in it. Who grows used to me seldom departs. I satisfy him so. That's a very chilling line. Who grows used to me seldom departs. I satisfy him so. Okay, first of all, the siren is the sirens in classical literature were uh river nymphs that were had had uh been cursed and ended up on this rocky crag of an island, changed into wretched birds, three of them. And they sang so beautifully that mariners would beach right there and the bone and the the, the beach was littered with the bleached bones of mariners that had landed there and couldn't get away. So that's the image that Dante is using. I'd like to just explore it for a minute. Uh, And uh, I'd like to begin with a a poem called Siren Song by Margaret Atwood. It speaks of a quality of this, which I think is wonderful. She writes this. This is the one song everyone would like to learn. The song that is irresistible. The song that forces men to leap overboard in squadrons even though they see the beached skulls. The song nobody knows because anyone who has heard it is dead and the others can't remember. Shall I tell you the secret? And if I do, will you get me out of this bird suit? I don't enjoy it here, squatting on this island, looking picturesque and mythical with these two feathery maniacs. I don't enjoy singing this trio, fatal and valuable. I will tell the secret to you. To you. Only to you. Come closer. The song is a cry for help. Help me. Only you. Only you can. You are unique. At last. Alas, it is a boring song, but it works every time. The siren says, who grows used to me seldom departs. By the way, it should be pointed out. The siren pulls no punches with Dante. She lays it right on the line. She says, you want to know who I am? Here's who I am. I destroy people in mid-course for a living. That's what I do. There's no pretensions, you know. There's no subterfuge. No dissembling. She just lays it right there. And she says, those who grow used to me seldom depart.'" So I wanted, to, I, I wanted to bring a poem in that would, be the, that would change the gender of the thing a little bit. I didn't want it to be all one thing. Uh, Ted Kooser has a poem in, entitled The Tattooed Lady, and this changes the gender. And it also picks up on this. If you'll remember now, Dante has conflated the Circe, who does in fact uh, seduce uh, Odysseus for a long time on her island and the, and the sirens, and also who grows used to me seldom departs. So this is the Tattooed Lady by Ted Cooser. Around the smallpox vaccination scar I'd hated since I was a little girl, I had him put this daisy. Then its stem because the flower looks so spidery without a stem. And then these little leaves. He said to think of it as just a gift for a pretty girl. I went to him that night because my arm was swollen, and I stayed for twenty years. Around the daisy's stem, he slowly wound a snake that circled me with swirls of trailer camps and cheap hotels and sideshows, yet I loved the masterpiece that I became to him. Well, at that point, Dante says, her lips were not yet done when there beside me a woman showed herself alert and saintly to cast the siren into much confusion. Alert and saintly or resolute and holy. Determined and holy. I think the way to translate that for our time is conscious. A conscious woman, a holy one who was conscious appeared at my side to cast the siren into much confusion. Oh, Virgil, Virgil, tell me who is this, she asked scornfully, and he came forward, his eyes intent upon that honest one, and notice there's almost a, a Medusa-like syndrome going on here. Well, I should go on. Virgil then seizes the, the siren and rips her clothes off and, and reveals a disgusting scene and a stench. And Dante moves his eyes and comes awake. But notice as Virg- Virgil comes up at the behest of the conscious one, the alert and holy one, and he keeps his eyes on the honest one, while he's going about the business of this, it's almost as though the personification of reason itself must have this holy one, this conscious one, this honest one, to keep him centered in this process of revealing that deception for what it is. Well, now, Dante has done two stunning things here, I think. The first is he put the siren on on the ledge of sloth. We wouldn't have thought of that. We would have put it on the ledge of lust. I, almost everybody would have done that. She actually is the personification of the next three ledges. She represents, in the same way that that the monster Gerion, the monster of fraud, represented everything that was to come in the journey to hell. The siren represents everything that's to come on the on the rest of the purgatorial journey. And then, the angel that takes the next P off his forehead, you know, and pronounces a. Beatitude, what beatitude is it? Quilugent is a phrase out of blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. I'll call attention to one thing, two things. The Israelites and the Trojans, when they experienced their mid-course collapse of will and ardor, were nostalgic for the past it still had hold on them in that way that kept them from the journey. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who have the strength and courage to put an end to what is over. And the other thing I call attention to is that the shoreline of the island on which the sirens live is littered with unburied bones. The opposite of repression and regression is mourning. It overcomes sloth by making the energy that is that is that it is bound up in repressing, or the energy that's absorbed in nostalgia, available again. Well, there's a funny poem I want to read two stanzas from from Richard Wilbur. It's called The Voice from Under the Table. "'You upright people all remember how love drove you first to the woods, "'and there you heard the loose-mouthed wind complaining thou and thou. "'My gawky limbs were shuddered by the word. "'Most of its sense was nothing but charades "'to spell that hankering out and make an end. "'But the softest hands against my shoulder blades Only increase the crying of the wind. Those two lines. The softest hands against my shoulder blades Only increase the crying of the wind. God keep me a damned fool, Nor charitably receive me into his shapely resignations. I am a sort of martyr, as you see, A horizontal monument to patience. The calves of waitresses parade about My helpless head upon this sodden floor well i 'm down again, but not yet out. Oh, sweet frustrations, I shall be back for more that 's it. I shall be back for more Coming back, even knowing that it's that that, that these are frustrations. The siren told Dante, "Oh she's I'll put my card right on the table and Dante says what's needed is that something must I must have the courage to make an end and therefore a beginning. Eliot said the, the, the beginning and the end is the same thing. All, and all my ends are beginnings. I must be willing to do that, to mourn something that's gone and get on with it. But it is that I have this experience that something must come to an end. For, uh, Robert Frost's poem, Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening, probably his most famous poem, uh, speaks to that. For me, particularly when, as is fairly clear from the poem, I think, he contemplates suicide. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near. Between the woods and frozen lake—the darkest evening of the year. The horse is his will. I don't. I don't want to be too he- too. I don't want to analyze this, but I think that's really the will. And notice he's stopping between We should have brought this in in Inferno. He's stopping between the dark wood and the frozen lake. He gives his harness bells a shake. That's his horse. See? To ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds, the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. Promises to keep. Where does the will come in to a life of love? On line 10 of Canto 20, Dante says, May you be damned, O ancient wolf whose power can claim more prey than all other beasts. And the ancient wolf, of course, is the wolf of greed or avarice. In an earlier prose writing, Dante had said this. Some of this will be familiar to you. He, he wrote this. Our soul immediately on entering on the new road of this life never passed before Directs its eyes toward the goal of its supreme good and therefore whatever it sees that seems to have some good in it believes it to be that and Because its knowledge at first is imperfect for lack both of experience and of instructions trifling good things seem good to it And these therefore it begins desiring Thus we see infants very greatly desiring an apple then afterwards going on to desire a little bird then afterwards desiring fine clothes And then a horse, and then a mistress, and then not great riches, then great riches, then very great. And this happens because in none of these things it finds that which it is seeking, and it thinks to find it farther on. So that was his early analysis of this problem, which of course hasn't changed much over the years. The sin here is the sin of avarice, and Dante has adopted Aristotle's understanding of avarice, which is that it is... It includes both avarice and wastefulness, both hoarding and wasting, or avariciousness and prodigality. The motivations, I think, in our time are more complex than simple greed, and I want to spend some time today exploring the other dimensions of, of what may motivate us to this kind of life. The first soul that Dante meets, like all of them, has his face down in the dust, weeping, and it is a Pope, Pope Adrian, and he says to Dante in Canto 19, verse 106 and following, he says, Alas, how tardy my conversion was, but when I had been named the Roman shepherd, then I discovered the deceit of life. I saw that there the heart was not at rest, nor could I in that life ascend more high, so that in me love for this life was kindled. Until that point I was a squalid soul from God-divided, wholly avaricious." Well, in Dante's medieval world, there was one advantage to the fact that it was hierarchically defined, uh, and it was a definition in which everyone concurred, more or less. And the benefit was that at least one person in every generation could be at the top. We no longer have a hierarchical system. Uh, or we, we do have one, but we don't have one that's commonly shared, the value, value system of which is commonly shared. In Dante's time, mm-hmm. even though somebody like Dante insisted upon the, the independent uh, significance of the empire or of the emperor or of the king, of that function, still in all, it was the pope who was at the absolute top of the social order. We don't have it quite that simple anymore. But in in any case, under those circumstances, if one got to the top, one was at the top. And if there were still longings, as Pope Adrian says there were for him, then he could assume that something had gone wrong. If, If what he had been longing for was to be at the top of the heap, and there he was and he still had longings, something was amiss. And that's what gave him the opportunity to experience the conversion. For most of us, we're never quite at the top because we don't live in such a Finally, uh defined hierarchy. I have a little cartoon here from, from the New Yorker I clipped out years ago, and it has one of the little corporate sycophants talking to the boss behind the great big desk, and he says, Are you satisfied now that you've reached the top, JP, or will you strive to reach the tippy-top? <laughs> <laughs> there is a relationship between one of the examples of avarice that Dante uh, gives here and the next penitent that he meets. And it is the king Midas. What I want to point to, we all know the story of Midas. Suddenly he's t- everything he's touching is turned to gold, but the problem is he touches his food and it turns to gold. He touches his drink and it turns to gold. In other words, life is dying, going out of it. He is, there is a loss of vitality. Most prominently signified by the fact that he touches his daughter and she turns to go, so that he touches, so that he turns his own intimate relationships into statuaries. Interesting that the same thing somewhat happens to Hugh Capet, who is the next uh, penitent that Dante visits. Hugh Capet is the now Dante's version of history is very shaky, but. Uh, so we just take it straight from the poem. But in any case, Ucappe was a origin of the Capetian dynasty of France, w- who the descendants of which had, in Dante's eyes, been been uh, conspicuous in their avariciousness. And Ucappe uh, was also an avaricious person. That's why he's here in Purgatory. But he talks about what happens to his. A dynastic line as it descends down and he speaks of one of his descendants who is Charles the Second, and he says I see him sell his daughter bargaining as pirates haggle over female slaves he used his daughter's marriage uh, and uh, and the whole question of dowry to, uh, to satisfy a, a greedy uh, urge of his own so Dante goes on to say or Hugh Capet goes on to say O avarice, my house is now your captive. It traffics in the flesh of its own children. What more is left for you to do to us? So like Midas, this avariciousness has caused the sacrifice of the children. Now, generically, we've talked about this in another context earlier, Uh, all idolatry leads to child sacrifice eventually, and, and the inordinate love of wealth is a form of idolatry. But more specifically, and to the point, what's happening is, for our purposes, I think what we can see happening here is a weakening and a breakdown of the relational cosmos at its most conspicuous place of importance, that is to say, in the family. Now, this is the subject of the most powerful of the Greek tragedies, the breakdown of this relational cosmos in the family. But for our purposes, it's a larger problem. That is to say, it is the movement out of the world, as Buber called it, the world of I, Thou, and into the world of I, It. Something that involves a kind of spiritual tailspin. Yeats said, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Suddenly, when these when these most potent of uh, relational forces weaken and slacken, then there is a... a a uh, drifting apart, a breaking up of the coherence of the cosmos. And I think this has to be seen as part of the problem, the surface of which is the moral problem of avarice. Martin Buber talks about, uh, the, uh, as you know, he his great insight into our condition was this juxtaposing the world of I-thou and the world of I-it. And he makes the point that there is, in the world of in the it world, he says, there is a progressive augmentation of the world of it. A progressive, uh, that is to say, things are always being improved and multiplied and nuanced and polished and made better. And the, this, there is a progressive augmentation of the world of it. But the energy that goes into that augmentation is taken from the I-thou world so that that progressive augmentation of the world of it is brought about, says Buber, by a corresponding decline in the capacity to enter into vital relationships. And I think we have to see this problem of avarice at least with that as it's underpinning. The progressive augmentation of the world of it is not necessarily that we get more things, although that may be part of it, but that we become more preoccupied with things. We put, place our reliance more on things. We begin to see our problems as human beings in a technical way, that is to say in, having to do with getting and manipulating things. So I'd like to, oddly enough, go back and quote De uh, Tocqueville comment about our society, a comment based on an observation made more than 100 years ago. He says, as each class approximates to other classes and intermingles with them, its members become indifferent and as strangers to one another. This is the, That one sentence is a great paradox. Yeah. It's a great paradox. As, it, as each class approximates to other classes and, and intermingles with them, its members become indifferent and as strangers to one another. Aristocracy had made a chain of all members of the community from the peasant to the king. Democracy breaks that chain and severs every link of it. They acquire the habit of considering themselves as standing alone and they are apt to imagine that their whole destiny is in their own hands. Thus not only does democracy make every man forget his ancestors, but it hides his descendants and separates his contemporaries from him. It throws him back forever upon himself alone and threatens in the end to confine him entirely within the solitude of his own heart. That's why, later on today, I would like to come back to something that's implied there. It is that we cannot analyze the kind of avarice that affects us today solely in terms of greed. We have to see there are other motivations involved, other more complicated psychological motivations involved. So I want to make two points and then and then uh, go on to a uh, to a poem that highlights this a little bit. The two points are that what is involved is a with this preoccupation with the material order is a weakening of vital energy. Despite the rhetoric of freedom an awful lot of the activity generated under this circumstance is really an As really an attempt to achieve autonomy and not freedom. To be relieved of the necessity to respond to the other, the outside world, and to create a little private reserve where one can be autonomous. And the other quandary uh, that has to do with this emphasis overemphasis on the material is that every attempt to solve the problem by enhancing the material position reinforces the fears that produced the flight into material security in the first place. I'd like to read a little poem by Theodore Rethke and then comment upon it. It is a poem. It's almost a fairy tale poem, really, the way he's written it. It's called Sale, and it's about an estate sale after the death of the uh, by the heirs uh, after the death of the uh, of the uh, inhabitants of the great estate, I'd like for you, as I read it, to to feel the weight of the material world and what it has cost in the relational world, and then, of course, everything hangs on the way. Uh, Rethke concludes the poem. Goes like this for sale by order of the remaining heirs, who ran up and down the big center stairs, the whatnot, the settee, the Chippendale chairs, and an attic of horrors, a closet of fears. The furniture polished and polished so grand, a stable and paddock, some fox hunting land, the summer house shaped like a village bandstand, and grandfather's sinister hovering hand the antimacassar for the sofa in red, the Bexstein piano, the four-poster bed, the library used as a card room instead, and some watery eyes in a copley head. The dining-room carpet dyed brighter than blood, the table where everyone ate as he should, the sideboard beside which a tall footman stood, and a fume of decay that clings fast to the wood. The hand painted wallpaper finer than skin, the room that the children had never been in, all the rings and the relics encrusted with sin, and the taint in a blood that was running too thin. Well, now, I think it's a mistake to analyze that in terms of that sin in the seconds of the last line, the rings and the relics encrusted with sin. Uh, perhaps there is a moral problem of avarice, of having too much, attempting to have too much and all of that. But it seems to me the big problem has, the deeper problem is hinted in the last line, which is the taint in the blood that was running too thin. That some kind of vitality was going out of life itself and was being sublimated into this concern for the material order. So it is an ontological issue instead of a moral issue. Ontological in the sense that it has to do with something, has to do with the nature of our existence more than simply a moral dilemma. Gabriel Marcel, the French existentialist, uh, wrote a, uh, a, an analysis of the distinction between being and having which goes, I think, beneath this moral problem of avarice, but illuminates it tremendously. And I want to just touch on a few things. It's a a detailed analysis, and I don't want to get into it, but I just want to touch on a couple of points that he makes. One point he makes is that having, at the heart of having, is a kind of what he calls suppressed dynamic. In other words, there is a lifelessness that begins to inhabit the having impulse. When the having impulse takes over... Uh, at the expense of the being, of, at the expense of being, then what happens is that life goes out of it. There is a, what he calls a suppressed dynamic. And Marcel says this: reality slips from my eyes, leaving me face to face with no more than its ghost. I am deceived by the inevitable coherence of this ghost, and so sink into self-satisfaction and pride. When in fact I ought to rather be attacked by doubts of the soundness of my undertaking. Reality will not play this game with us insofar as we cut ourselves off from it and consequently are guilty of self-delusion. So it's a self-delusion. Excuse me, he says self-desertion. It is a self-desertion. But particularly taken by, I am deceived by the inevitable coherence of this ghost. The nice thing about things is that they stay still for you. It's that they have a coherence that human relationships or the world of relatedness doesn't have in the sense that it doesn't cohere quite that nicely. It's always moving in flux. So it present even though it's a ghost, it presents itself as more coherent than its alternative. The self-desertion, I think... Uh, implied or spoken of by Marcel is is uh, implied in Wordsworth's famous lines about getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Uh, I'd never quite thought about that line in the same way until after I read Marcel. We lay waste our getting and spending. We diminish our lives. We lay waste our powers. It's not that we're just making a moral pro- mistake by spending all... We actually diminish our vitality, we lay waste our powers. It's the blood running thin or the waning of the life force.